0: In this podcast, we're talking to Professor Tim and Tim is a professor of anthropology, and um, we're going to be talking a bit about sort of moods and expressing ourselves today. Um, difficult times, aren't they, Tim?
1: Good morning, Dick. Yes, it's, it's really tricky, isn't it? We're, we're in a time of huge uncertainty and stress and anxiety, and I think it's, it's showing amongst, uh, amongst all of us.
0: Yes, I know I've been a bit more short-tempered, if I'm honest. Um, I'm a little bit more gloomy if I if I stop to think about how I feel. And um, and it does affect everything you do, doesn't it? I've said some things that I regret to other people that perhaps I wouldn't normally have. So it is odd, but we're kind of somewhat in control of that, aren't we, as human beings?
1: Well, we are, uh, but at the same time, because there's so much uncertainty, we just do not know, you know, when is there going to be the end of this is a wretched pandemic. We can't plan properly. We can't think ahead. Our lives are restricted. Uh, Nothing seems to be normal or we're not in control of so many different things. And of course we're experiencing, and I've talked about this before, we're experiencing a sort of false sense of not being able to communicate because we're in a a lockdown situation. And and it's not surprising to me that when it looked like we could ease things, people went a little bit crazy and then of course we've got now the second spike and it looks like we're back into lockdown or sort of lockdown i think uh, we we're, we're just feeling that we're we're not in control of things and we don't know what's going to happen next
0: yes it's interesting for me at least and i can only speak personally this this actually from a m- mental health point of view feels worse to me than than the march lockdown and and yet when we locked down in march more people were dying, more people were getting the virus, as far as we can tell, than are now. But this is sort of a, oh, here we go again feeling. Well, I think
1: that that's precisely it, isn't it? The first time was, was novel, uh, horrible, but we thought, we'll do this and we'll come out OK at the end. And then to have gone through that, began to feel that things were getting better, and then, in fact, to find more... Uh, more conditions imposed upon us in terms of what we can do and where we can go and who we can meet with and that that's very depressing when something happens a second time and now no even the prime minister is talking about another six months and this seems interminable we can't get back to normal life and it's it's putting huge pressure on us as individuals but of course on us as a society because the economic situation the health situation it's nothing that seems to be uh, controllable at the moment.
0: And I suppose then you have to focus on the things that you can actually control. I mean, I think that what brought to mind when I was thinking about this subject was the kind of Buddhist philosophy, which is about not thinking about what just happened or what is about to happen, but think about now and experience the now and 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 live in the now, sort of. I mean, that's a huge <laughs> distillation of Buddhist philosophy, isn't it? But, but it is that kind of, OK, can I live in this moment and, and not worry too much about the future? Or is, is that just really being too blinkered?
1: Well, no, I think it's the, it's the right approach. And I did write at one stage in a blog about this, how you know, we can normalize our lives by thinking about what we're doing at the precise moment and not projecting too much ahead and certainly not projecting uh, behind as well. We know what's happened in the past. Try and live that precise moment because that's the bit you can control. You can't control the future. We don't know what's going to happen, but we can control what we do now. We can create routines for ourselves. Or we can look at how we behave and modify that. And in a sense, just try and come to terms with a reality, but not get it out of, out of proportion. And sometimes it, you know, it seems so depressing that people do get things out of proportion.
0: Um, I, I, but as, hum- uh, as human beings, aren't we kind of programmed to be looking to the future, to, to be thinking about what's next, to be trying to improve in whatever way that might be? Isn't that hard to break, that kind of way of living?
1: Well, it, you're absolutely right. We're, and as far as we know, we're unique amongst animal species in that we can imagine things. Our consciousness gives us the opportunity to imagine. If you say, take our cousins, great apes, our gorillas, orangutans and chimpanzees, uh, they have a lot of interesting skills, but they live just in the moment. So for example, if there's a food supply available, they don't put some aside for the future, they'll eat it all at the same time because they're living in the moment. Um, there are some animals that are programmed to think about the future. You know, everybody knows about squirrels burying nuts or whatever, but that's not actually a conscious action.
0: That's just so when, they, when they bury those, area. right? So when they bury those nuts, they're not thinking, "Ah, oh, right, okay, I've got that for next spring. I'm sorted." They're just that's burying right. might nuts because that's they're
1: not They haven't got that imagination to think those things through. They're just programmed because that's how the species survive. Those squirrels put something aside were the ones that survive but as you say we've got we we're programmed to think about all sorts of things our imagination takes us everywhere and it's a great asset but of course it also can be a curse because we can imagine the worst sort of things (laughs) and that lack of control that uncertainty constantly dogs us what we want as human beings is to try and make things certain because that is the key to our survival um but we can imagine all sorts of awful things happening. And uh, I'm afraid when there's a crisis like this, people do get very depressed about thinking about what could happen in the future, not necessarily what will happen, because we don't know.
0: <laughs> and everybody's going to have different coping strategies for that, I suppose, aren't they? So there isn't really a, a one-size-fits-all. But from an anthropological point of view... Um, is that ability to imagine and and to look forward is that that's part of our evolution and it's why we 've sort of survived and dominated as a species is that is that true
1: that, that's absolutely right i you know, if you think about it in the, in the long term our ancestors the ones who were anxious and what were they anxious about they probably were anxious about getting eaten by some uh Animal being yes. prey yes. which puts animal.
0: today's problems into context doesn't it
1: <laughs> yes and so if, if they the ones that were relaxed and didn't look around were the ones that did get eaten <laughs> and their genes their genes weren't passed on so the anxious ones who were worrying all the time and taking precautions they were the ones that survived so there is yes there's a good evolutionary purpose to anxiety which actually has helped us but of course in troubled times it can also be a curse because that anxiety can overwhelm us. we can't control the future, we don't know what's going to happen. uncertainty uncertainty builds on uncertainty, and then we feel we're out of control uh, and that leads to all sorts of mental pressures
0: yeah, do you think ego has a role to play here in the sense that um we we think that um we can influence the future more than we actually can and therefore we are willing to get worried about it because we think there's something we can do about it when sometimes perhaps there isn't
1: well that that's absolutely right and of course the, the, the ego you refer to we do know as individuals the world revolves around us we are the world and sort of you know if you're thinking in an existential terms of philosophy of course that's absolutely true we only see the world through our own eyes and we have to be the most important people in that world I mean, I'm always interested in watching uh, toddlers begin to exercise their egos. It's fascinating, you know, that they want to be in control of the world and they can't because they're so dependent. And it's a very interesting uh, frustration for them, often exploding into all sorts of emotional outcries. <laughs> yes. But we're, you're absolutely right. Our ego is, is important. We are the center of the world and therefore we need to control everything around us. And if we lose control of something and that may be Personal relations, it may be circumstances beyond uh, the the, the human relations. But whatever it is, that is very upsetting because we're no longer in control. We don't know what will happen to us.
0: Now, that leads on to an interesting point. So, you know, the toddler who can't get to their toys but wants to be able to or or whatever and having a bit of a meltdown. What what role do our emotions then in a a kind of evolution sense, what role do our emotions and, and our expression of them play?
1: Well, what's interesting here is, I mean, our emotions are t- inevitably are going to be reactive in all sorts of circumstances. We react to something. And uh, <laughs> we, we've talked about uh, road rage before, so I won't go on about it. But you know how we, we react with fight or flight in a particular situation. That's a reactive thing. And that's very emotional. And it, it's, Physically, we can record it. The heartbeat goes up, but people start to sweat and so on and so forth. There's a real physical reaction to that. But what is also interesting um, is that we can create our own emotions. We can actively do that. And that's something quite surprising because people would think, oh, well, we just react to situations. No, we can actually create them. And I've been talking in my last two blogs about how we can create a better atmosphere for ourselves. i um, We talked about jollity, being jolly um, and being jolly should be a reaction to happiness and what it is. But we can also actually program ourselves uh, to be jolly. And if you think about that, um, let's take an example of how jollity can be infectious. Uh, I use the, in my article, I use the example of what's called canned laughter. You're, You're watching a comedy on television and it's absolute silence. You don't have the same reaction as if there's canned audience there laughing you begin to laugh with the audience and a very Mm -hmm. good example of that in terms of uh, therapy is laughing yoga you start off by forcing yourself to laugh you don't feel particularly happy or it is but as you laugh people around you start laughing it becomes infectious and then you're all laughing together and you've lifted your mood you've changed your experience so we can actually create emotions and that's a powerful tool in a situation where you might feel quite depressed because of what's going on around you You could actually and i think this goes back to what you were saying about buddhism you can put yourself in a position and modern day people call it mindfulness where you think about your condition and you can control that condition and you can create a new mood and that's quite interesting
0: it is interesting and, and also might explain why at least I I don't know whether other people do, but I kind of tend to empathise with actors in films where they're playing a particularly unpleasant or miserable character. And I think, gosh, uh, uh, after every day's filming, how did they go home at night? And maybe that I'm thinking, well, they probably have to make themselves somewhat horrible and miserable for that duration. That can't be very easy to break out of. And perhaps that is true.
1: Well, I think that's right. And, and you only have to read, I mean, I was uh, fascinated to read what uh, Joachim Phoenix said, who played the Joker in a, a film. Mm. that. Uh, and he played the, the Joker as basically someone who was going through a, a, a psychopathology. He was a psychopath in that. Um, and it was really interesting. Of course, they added this bit that he had an illness which made him laugh. Now, that is interesting. And there we have seen that there can be, and I described it in my latest blog as what we might call it inappropriate laughter, and uh, we all know you know there's the sinister laughter of the the, the maniac in a James Bond film or whatever it is you know, that, <laughs> yes that's whole lonely laughter, which is not infectious, which is very disturbing there's also um now good evidence, for example, one of the symptoms sadly of dementia can be uncontrollable laughter or laughter. It's an inappropriate point. Um, I gave an an example. I don't think we're all guilty of this. I gave an example of inappropriate laughter. Um, At at my grandmother's funeral, at my grandmother's funeral, uh, I I was there with the family and she was being cremated. And it was in a a rather undistinguished uh, crematorium. And after all the ceremonies had gone through, uh, the music started up. And the music, unfortunately, was being played slightly slower so it was flat so the music was flat and then the coffin rolled along the, the, pl- the platform going towards the, the chamber doors the, and it started creaking and then finally as the coffin reached the curtains jammed and I, I mean I can't remember how I wasn't I was probably about 15 at the time or something I started I started giggling it was just <laughs> it was spontaneous because it was just a farce uh, and of course, that was very inappropriate for a solemn ceremony. <laughs> I think we're all guilty sometimes of of laughing inappropriately, and it's almost a defence mechanism. It's obviously it's like an, it's,
0: it's called cool. well, there's such a thing as nervous laughter, isn't there? And it is that kind of there's perhaps different with your grandmother's funeral, but there is also that kind of inappropriate laughter as, as a as a sort of cover for I don't know having taken offence perhaps or something like. Why do we laugh? What is the purpose? Of us, lo- I mean, obviously we enjoy it, but 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 what what's the purpose of us laughing, showing our outward joy?
1: Right. Well, this is this is where we do go back into evolution because um, the other great apes can smile and laugh too. So it's our ancestors some some time ago learnt this process, and what we think it is is essentially it's a social activity which. Done in the right way actually suppresses hostility and aggression. If you think about it, the, the, the difference between bearing your teeth, which are weapons, remember, aggressive, bearing your teeth and snarling, the difference between that and smiling and then into laughter is quite subtle. It's all about facial muscles in the human beings and in our uh, cousins, the great apes. We're lifting our muscles up and turning our lips up, showing our teeth, but In a sense, because of the the muscles going upwards, it becomes a smile. And that's a social reassurance. So when we meet people um, coming along the street, the the tendency is to be friendly and smile. It's it's an indication of friendliness and alliance and uh, social relationship rather than fear.
0: Did it perhaps start out a bit like a sort of an I come in peace sign?
1: I think that's that's right, so you smile and you you what you're trying to do there is reduce any sense of aggression. You have to think about how competitive uh, natural selection has made us we're very you know, all species very competitive, so we're fighting for survival. Uh, only have to think about you know um, birds in a nest and one bird gets thrown out or whatever. Uh, we are animals very competitive and it's about survival. so when we meet another animal. Uh, And you see this sometimes with dogs. We we go into their their competition. We'll be hostile. We're aggressive. We're not sure about them. And so, uh, the smile is the other side of that. We're not snarling. We're not aggressive. We're saying we come in peace. We're friendly. Let's be nice together. So it's it's mollifying aggression. It's trying to reduce hostility. And so it becomes a very important social weapon. And you know how often we use the smile as a as a signal that we're friendly and we want to have a good social relationship with this person
0: hmm perhaps we should all <laughs> smile in the street a bit more I think actually people don't do that as much as they used to I think there's i think people uh, you know you can go to other countries where more or less everyone you pass if you're walking or out in the street will say hello um there's no more than that you say hello back. That's the end of it. But we we seem to have moved away from that here. I don't know. Perhaps I'm just thinking the old days were so much better. (laughs) I'm turning like like the grumpy old guy. But do you, I mean, I think we have slightly. And might there be any sort of reasons in our past for that, overcrowding or whatever?
1: Well, yeah, no, I think there are are reasons. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about not living in the present. Uh, We've got so many pressures on us now. And we're, you know, we've got so much communication. There's a lot of good things about it. Think about social media, our mobile phones, and so on. But also, there's a lot of uh, difficult things about it because we're we're constantly casting ourselves into the future. What's going to happen? So we're walking down the street. We're not conscious that we're in the street with other people that we might want to socialise with. We're walking down the street thinking about: Am I going to get to the next meeting? Or what am I going to do about that? Or have I done the other mm. and so on? So we're cut off, and therefore. We, we don't have a relationship with that person walking towards us. Whereas if you think about uh, other cultures, which are perhaps going slower, and again, I think you know, urban versus countryside is a very obvious one, where culture is going slower, the pace of life is going slower, people say hello and smile. I mean, I was always conscious. Um, uh, uh, you know, if you travel from London to, say, the West Country, I'm just... Plucking that out of the air, but you go, let's go. People in the shops will talk to you there, whereas in London, mm. the are too busy. Everybody's rushing, so it is about pace of life, and it does go back to this thing about mindfulness and being thinking about the present and where you are. And I do agree with you. I don't think we smile enough or we laugh enough because I go back to that bit about being contagious. It can lift our mood. It can. It has a very positive effect, not just on us as individuals. But on those people around us, there's nothing better than you know meeting someone who's in a good mood and cheerful, and
0: they raise your spirits. Mm. And it is added. true, it, it is true, isn't it, that if you, I mean, perhaps not if you're in the depths of despair, but if, if you force yourself to smile, there is something that happens in your body, whether it's chemical or what. But but the, it, it, something feels slightly better already. Um, uh, in fact, <laughs> I'm just laughing now, I'm smiling. I don't know whether that's a nervous laugh or not now. I'm analyzing everything, aren't I? but uh, but it's, it is it just there's something. you feel slightly better. So are there things we could do in these difficult circumstances that at least help a bit um, and, and help us help us to um, to get through this, not feeling quite as grim about it as we might otherwise?
1: Well, I think there are two things here, and one, one may sound slightly old-fashioned, but it's, it's all about manners and politeness, and they are rituals, and they have a purpose. They're not just hypocritical things that say, oh, you know, I'm just going to be mannered and polite to somebody else because that's how we should do it. There's a ritual that puts you into that mood. So be polite, be well-mannered, be kind to other people, and that reflects on yourself and makes you feel better. The other element, the second one, is a very important one, and we all need to do this at some point or other, and that's to be able to laugh at ourselves. Um, and I, I noticed this with, with various things. You know, you you set out to do something, and it may be um, a DIY job. Let's take that as an example. And it goes wrong. And what you want to do is swear and cuss and you get angry, and then you're bad-tempered to the people around you. And actually, that's a point at which you should say, Is it that important? Just relax a bit. Have a laugh at yourself because you've got it wrong. You know, it's not important. And Mm -hmm. then change the mood. You have created a different mood. It's that ability, which I think is so powerful, not just to react to a situation, but actually manage it. And it goes back, doesn't it, to this whole point we've been talking about at the start of this, about uncertainty. Not being able to manage uncertainty creates all those sort of pressures. If you manage yourself, the one thing we've got control over in this world, nothing else, is ourselves. We can't control other things. Of course, things happen to us, but we can manage how we react to them. And if we react to them in the right mood, we can actually raise our spirits. And as I say, raise the spirits of those people around us.
0: Yes, it's interesting. And if we go back to um, last March, and it, you know, it, it was a terrible time for many people, and there's no taking away from that. But some people, perhaps not so much happened to them, but some people were able to kind of take control in that way. And I've had sort of slightly furtive conversations with a few people who've said, well, I actually quite enjoyed it, um, which, which I don't think any of us particularly want to admit, and also not recognizing entirely that many people did not and had a horrible time of it. Um, uh, and may not have been able to do as much as others t- to control. But there is that whole thing about, OK, uh, and I think it helped that it was novel, as you said earlier on, that that this was a new thing. I need to work out how to do this. And to some extent, I suppose perhaps that planning instinct or that planning in us came out the first time around because it's like, OK, this is all new. Let's work out how to do this. Um, it, it's perhaps a little harder this time to replicate that kind of feeling. But, but there are things that we can do to 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 take as much control over our lives as we can and to make sure that we're safe and that others are safe. And, you know, to some extent, back to your point about courtesy, um, you know, it's a courtesy to others to be as careful as you can, right?
1: Yes, no, I think that that's true. And yes, I think at the beginning, people discovered perhaps new social relationships, how we're able to spend more time with the family, uh, people more at home and so on. But of course, that, that's limited, and I think the second wave, the sense of going backwards is, is always depressing. Now, I, t- I know it's easy for people in different circumstances to say, yes, you, do, you need to manage your feelings, and you need to, in that sense, try and control something. And you might say, someone will say, well, look, the awful thing is not happening to you. <laughs> uh-huh. you're, you're in a better position. So there's always that things aren't totally comparative in that way. But what I'm interested in is the individual's own health, and what they can do to manage those emotions. And as I say, actually create some. Uh, It has been a terrible and awful experience for lots and lots of people, both through the illness and losing uh, their jobs and so on and so forth. So it's very tricky, I know, to preach and say, well, look, you can actually manage this. But in the end, it's our own individual health, our own survival as as a human being that's important to us, and if we don't take steps to help ourselves, then we're not going to get a lot of help from others around us. And that's, you know, what can you do with a miserable, grumpy person if they won't cheer up? What can you do?
0: Mm, OK, well, uh, and perhaps you can cheer someone else up by being that little, little bit... More, more cheerful. Fascinating uh, to find out a bit more about the reasons for our emotions and why we express them the, the ways that we do. And, you know, to discuss maybe just some small things that, that we can do to uh, change our lives a little bit and and that of others tim thank you so much for your thoughts on this um it's always fascinating and great to talk about things from an anthropological point of view Uh, professor tim bosan is a professor of anthropology and uh, joined us on this podcast tim thanks so much
1: thank you nick it's been a great pleasure